Welcome to the original vegan business talk with myself, Shane Jeremy James, where I discuss life-changing business advice with vegan companies who are making a true difference in the world. Hey everybody, Got welcome it. back to the next episode. And today we have Salone Ortel on. Did I get the last name right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I mean, like, you know, you, yeah, you pronounce it slightly differently than I would, but that's acceptable. Okay. I'm Canadian. So that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the perfect excuse. That's going to be my opening after everyone now. I'm Canadian. I'm Canadian, <laughs> by the way. I'm Canadian. Uh, so you founded the Investment Vegan. Uh, is it a club or is it Invest? So Invest Vegan is a registered investment advisor. So I manage money on behalf of, you know, I mean, basically, you know, I was sort of thinking about how to do sustainable investing. And I realized that most of the really compelling sustainable investing strategies were only open to like super rich people, um, which is lame as heck. So I, I basically, you know, built a firm from the ground up that not only allows me to do my version of ethics first investing, which I think is pretty distinctive and we can get into that. But um, it also allows me to take on clients who have as little as $1 to invest. So, you know, the hope is that folks who are kind of like turned off by capitalism um, or, you know, feel like they're they're never going to find someone who aligns with their kind of vegan morality, right. um, you know, will be able to, um, you know, access the, the magic of compounding and, you know, through that, build up our communities wherever they are and be able to kind of support each other more down the road. Right. That's cool. So why did you decide to go into this space with that industry? So why did you decide to go after conscious and vegan and, and this type of stuff inside that industry? Well, so I, I've been working in investment management since I was like literally 19 years old. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, said so I'm going to date myself. That was 2007. Um, and when I was there, like, so my first gig was at a, a, you know, a brokerage firm right before the big crash. Right. right? Uh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I, I was I had this like catbird seat to like observe the world fall apart. Uh -huh. And in that process, I like I saw both how disconnected yeah. the investment managers were from what mattered to the clients and how arbitrary all of the underlying stuff was. Right. Because it right. just seemed so fundamentally disconnected from any concept of ethics or morality or you know, just kind of like long-term yeah. alignment with the people that are holding the investments. You know? And you were in the heart of things then. You were in New York then too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was working for Oppenheimer and Company. And then I left Oppenheimer to work for a private equity firm for a little bit. And then I went to a place called CFA Institute, which um, is pretty well known in Canada. It's kind of the sort of like the global bar association for professional investors. I think in right. Canada, you actually need to get your CFA in order to to yeah. be an, an advisor for certain things. But um, so my role there was basically to like uh, hang out with people who were doing edgy stuff at the periphery of what was current practice and in investment management, which at that time was really sustainable investing. Um, and I sort of became a spokesmodel of sorts where, you know, I would sort of go figure out what was going on and then turn around and explain it to people, figure out what was going on, turn around and explain it to people. Um, right. And through that, I, I developed this conviction that if I could find a group of people who shared my worldview, um, we could build a really special collaboration. Right. Um, you know, and so it sort of was like marinating in my mind for a long time that 
something like Invest Vegan was going to happen. I didn't know I wasn't vegan yet, so I didn't know it was Invest Vegan. Yeah. Um, but I love the idea, you know, veganism is an ethical framework, not a diet, yeah. right? So, you know, like the idea of avoiding preventable harm to living things, mm -hmm. doing whatever we can to do that. Um, and once that test has been met, make a make as positive a contribution as we can. Um, you know, those yeah. that that I think is what people want from sustainable investment vehicles and advisors. Right. And the the kind of wall street version of that is so watered down and so lame um that i felt like somebody had to you know take a stab at doing something better right and that's interesting very interesting business model that way and how you've kind of you know brought all that uh you know combine the two industries almost what what's been the what's been one of the biggest challenges for you well, you know, I I think you know it's hard. <laughs> like, well, where do I start? Yeah, yeah, it's all over. Yeah, um, ask you know, an ask an entrepreneur where's the biggest challenge, right? And you're like, well, yeah, exactly. Talking like, about my 22 today, or yeah, yeah, like yeah, exactly. Like, how much time have you got? Yeah. Um, I you know I, I would say the biggest challenge historically, like, and I'm talking about over the broad scope of my life, has been feeling like I had permission to be weird, um, yeah, like feeling feeling empowered to do whatever it was that my instincts were pulling me to do. Right. Right. Um, you know, and at one point I had a mentor explicitly take me aside and go, you know, you have permission to be weird. Right. Um, which is a, you know, I'm now saying this to everyone listening to this podcast, you have permission to be weird as well. Um, but the, you know, when I was kind of ruminating over all these ethical issues that I had with the industry I was in, I didn't really feel like it was safe to build the thing that I ultimately wound up building. Um, and I think that if I had felt a little bit freer to express myself in that way, um, I might have come to this firm a lot earlier and been able to have a lot more impact over the, the course of time by just by virtue of starting earlier. So I hope that somebody else starts slightly earlier than they might have otherwise. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. And when you say like, kind of like, you know, be okay to, you know, express yourself, like almost not care and just be you. Elaborate a little more on that. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's two dimensions of it. One, which is like in some ways interesting and in other ways kind of boring, which is that I'm a, a, a queer trans woman. Um, but and, and like, you know, that's got stuff attached to it. And we can talk about it. But the what I really mean is, you know, the ability to be like, this does not make sense. Right. You know, something in this industry, you know, here's this entire industry full of white men in blue button down shirts. Right. All acting like they have a differentiated view of the world. Uh, right. And on the face of it, it doesn't make sense. Most people in the industry will acknowledge it doesn't make sense, but very few will feel unable to do something about it. Do something different because right. it's risky. Yeah. Um, you know, and like, you know, I think, you know, coming out and manifesting and living authentically is risky too. Um, but in a way the, you know, like the, you get, you know, you get affirmation in most kind places for living authentically mm -hmm. in a personal capacity, but living authentically in a professional capacity is, is much, much, much harder to do because you really have to find your tribe of people, yeah. uh, you know, and kind of figure out how to be in cahoots with each other without getting in each other's way over time. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, and for you, and this goes for a lot of, uh, a lot of different people. And even you could even classify me, uh, being indigenous, 
you know, go back 15 years ago and stuff. Yeah. There's just no, everyone just wanted the white male guy. If you want to come speak in my company, you know, you should be white. You should be male. You should wear the suit, you know, and I'm not saying everybody, but the majority of it was very top heavy. They were not looking for indigenous people to come and speak, you know, in their companies. And, and so, you know, that kind of goes back to what I was going to ask you, you know, you went to a very white male dominated industry. So was it tough for, for you? Like, well, so I had this weird experience where I was already kind of high profile in the industry before I came out. Okay. Um, you so know, mean so, like you were doing well? You mean? Um, yeah. Well, like, I, you know, my, my company sent me to the, the U.S. mission to the U.N. to do a private briefing on sustainable investing for like a whole bunch of U.N. ambassadors. That's cool. Um, yeah. You know, and like I had been on CNBC and all this stuff. And like, you know, shortly after I came out, I mean, the, the weird thing was I had I had like you know, quote unquote, legitimate professional achievements. Um, but shortly after I came out, I became much more notable for being transgender than for any of those. Um, because right, there's right. there's just such a paucity of trans people in the industry, especially trans people who are free to speak about their experiences. Right. Um, you know, that hmm. the, you know, just the basic fact of who I am um, was in many ways more interesting to people than what I did uh you know for for a period of time you know and maybe you've experienced similar similar things being indigenous where you know people kind of tokenize you a little bit uh well especially now with indigenous because in in canada especially because you know all the stuff around indigenous and and all the kids they found dead and you know and all that i mean just terrible just the profound history of genocide and yeah, you terrible, know, torture, terrible. Every bad thing known to man. Yeah. Yeah, terrible stuff. Everything that was kind of, you know, hidden, right? And and stuff. So now, whether it be right or wrong reasons, you know, it's almost like every company now wants to have an indigenous person on their roster, whether it's you're coming in to speak, work, you know. But you yeah. know, you kind of. You're a good example. One of my my uh, my kind of friends and, and and he's mentored me a lot too. He's you know worth about four hundred million, big business guy, and he said to me, "Now's your time. Now is your time to use your ethnic right. It, it's just your spot. That's it. Period. Now use it. Use it. Take it. Promote. You know the indigenous, and you're gonna get a leg up now." You know, they're going to, when the, when you know, the music's playing, it's time to dance. He's, he's, a, he's a very successful white guy and he goes, they're just going to bump people like me now and you're going to get the spotlight. <laughs> I mean, I, from his lips to God's ears, right? I mean, like the, you know, I, I do think that there's some course correction that's happening, but, um, you know, it's always like, you know, too little, too late, right? Like, yeah. you know, uh, on the global scale. And like, and I think as the person who winds up being in some ways a beneficiary of that, shift in attention, it can be complicated ethically and, and morally and personally to, um, you know, kind of find yourself as a representative for a cohort of people that maybe, you know, because of those stresses and because of those past traumas that were inflicted on your, you know, population and your your families and your whatever, you know, maybe there's some alienation there. And maybe, you know, so it's a, it's a lot of work that you're doing to, to, you know, put those representations out there and do it. And, you know, I applaud it. Yeah, so true. So true. That's a good, very, very well said. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So with, uh, you know, with, with what you do, uh, give some, uh, some tips to 
people that might help people in the investment area that are, you know, like say have vegan businesses. Oh, so, so folks who are like, you know, thinking about raising capital. Yeah. You know, yeah. hundred percent. Cause I have a lot of people around, you know, right now, some of my friends have raised a lot of, you know, money mm -hmm. Two two of my, two of my closest friends, one just raised, had raised 54 million and the other one raised, you know, a hundred million, uh, you know, those are large numbers. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those are, those are, quite 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 a quite quite a little chunk 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 of money right um so but then i also you know see a lot of other people trying to raise and they're struggling especially now especially yeah. now because i think now and correct me if i'm wrong on this just put inflation aside but the fact is people are not seem to be giving out money in the vegan space as easily as they used to be do you agree with that? I, yeah, yeah. I well, you know, I think that so, you know, that's a really kind of pregnant observation, right? Yeah. You know, I I think basically, you know, my short history of the vegan investment space, you know, is like, you know, in the internet boom, there was kind of the Netscape IPO and that brought about this huge proliferation of dot com companies and right. the Beyond Meat IPO, I think was very similar to that in that, you know, it kind of like here's I mean Wall Street, if you give it a stock that goes up 500%, they will go bananas for that and do all kinds of crazy stuff, um, right? right? There's there's no group of people that is more skilled at justifying, uh, you know, a random increase in price than the than Wall Street bankers. So um, it was almost preordained after Beyond Meat had such a successful debut here in the U.S. that other folks would kind of try to chase the dragon, right? Um, you know, and I think that there is in the investment community a fundamental misunderstanding of what the vegan opportunity space is. Um, you know, the a lot of time, like when I talk to people who are, you know, I talk to chief investment officers at pensions and whatnot. Um, you know, the, they assume that I'm investing in things like Beyond Meat, you know, kind of synthetic lab-grown meat and all kinds of high-tech stuff. Right. Um, and really, what I'm trying to do is find the investment equivalent of chickpeas, right? Stuff that's like, you know, pretty, like pretty tested, pretty established, yeah. non-speculative. You know, I'm just trying to to redefine the investment universe so that, you know, the stuff that is, you know, I can, that is murder is not part of it. Right. Um, you know, and so um, I think that there's, there's definitely been a race to create all sorts of lab grown meat stuff that I have a hard time feeling like is going to create any commercial value. Um, you know, at yeah. least, at least in the short term, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so like the beyond meat competitor, you know, I, like, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, as a consumer, I'll eat it, but as an investor, it takes a lot for me to, for me to care about that in right. part, because I mean, beyond meat was basically saying that they were going to reinvent not only the protein, but also the entire distribution ecosystem for consumer packaged food, um, which we don't have to get into it, but huge, huge task. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing I think, you know, we've had this massive supernova event that has shaped so many vegan entrepreneurs experiences of the fundraising challenge. Um, there's this other issue that is kind of endemic to entrepreneurship in general, where like people have this tendency to confuse activity with progress, right? Like the fundraising winds up being the goal, not the business. Um, you know, and yeah. the, like, there's been a proliferation of alternative funding models that have kind of sprung up in the last little bit. Right. Um, 
you know, where whether it's people who are willing to lend against your revenue or, uh, you know, debt based financing, like, you know, convertible notes and all sorts of other stuff like that, that really make it the case that, you know, doing a traditional venture backed startup is not the automatic best idea, uh, you know, for for many high growth businesses. Yeah. You know, in reality, it never was. Um, but there's this huge like blinking sign over the venture backed pathway that is right. so seductive to entrepreneurs that they will, you know, without thinking about it necessarily distort the nature of their vision to work on something that works for the entrepreneur, for, for the VCs, not for, for them. Right. Uh, you know, and so, you know, I, like, I, I think that that my biggest advice would be like, what are you doing? Why is it important? And how much capital do you really need? Right. Um, you know, because like if you raise too much capital, it's going to wind up limiting your staying power because you have suddenly all of these constituencies to please that are expecting you to take their money and go from, you know, one to, you know, 40 X right. yeah. over time, you know, when you really might have just come up with a really good vegan breakfast burrito concept that, you know, if you distributed it in Vancouver and, you know, slowly grew it, yeah could be a cult classic that lasts for right. decades. You know, right. I mean, like Tofurky was made by weird hippies. Um, it's right. still owned by those weird hippies. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Really? Yeah. It's, I mean, like, so, and, and those, yeah. those models are, you know, the kinds of things that wind up producing disruptive innovation more often than not, not the like, you know, Uber hyped Silicon Valley, you yeah. know, se sexy headquarters, lots and lots of swag and, and fancy parties, you know, um, so, but it just takes a lot of discipline to, you know, stay focused on that long term vision. That's amazing advice. Do you think if somebody, you know, if somebody has that type of, of business, let's say, you know, the guy has the, the chickpea concept, you know, and the reason I say that is because obviously I interview so many, but where I'm from in Canada, Saskatchewan three farmers, some girls I know started a, a chickpea concept and they're doing super well. They do chickpeas and lentils and all that. And so they were the business girls and they went to the farmers and said, Hey, the, you know, the farmers had no idea about this or whatever. And they said, look, this is an opportunity and, and they're really growing. And, you know, it's healthy snack, healthy snack food that they've done. And where yeah. I'm from Saskatchewan has, I didn't, I learned this through them and I didn't know this but has one of the most chickpeas in the whole world in Canada. I didn't know that. Huh. Right. So, yeah, I was like, Oh, that's interesting. You know? So, you know, if, if somebody has a business, like say, or an idea kind of like that, let's say, you know, is it hard? Where should, should they be going to try and raise venture capital? How should they go about it? Do you think, what are some advice that they can get that money? Do you think? So, so I think with venture capital, a good rule of thumb is that, you know, it, certainly equity venture capital, right, where you sell a stake of your company, you know, yeah. in exchange for cash um, is the most expensive money you can raise. Okay. Um, and it, it's really only worth pursuing if you think you have a reasonable chance of delivering a 10x or greater return, right. um, you know, over a three to seven year time horizon. Because that, like, no matter what your venture capitalist says, that's what they're going to be looking for a lot right. of the time. Um, you'll definitely find people who are mission oriented and, you know, who think a little bit longer term, um, you know, but by and large, that three to seven time, time, three to seven, 
three to seven year time horizon, 10x, you know, return objective thing is going to predominate and it's going to be a silent component of any conversation you have. So it's kind of binary in a way, right? Like if you, if, if you go, oh yeah, 10x, absolutely. If I could just get, you know, this piece of equipment and hire three salespeople and expand from Saskatchewan to all these other provinces, no problem. Right. Then you're like, okay, well, I got to start having some conversations. But if that's not the case, then you want to start to think about other ways of getting the capital you need. Are there, you know, is there a bank that'll lend you money for that, you know, that equipment? Right. Um, you know, can you get, you know, find a salesperson who's willing to work for a greater, you know, equity stake, right? Could you just give a salesperson equity and see what happens with that um, and allow them to, you know, I mean, so the, I, I think being able to, you know, kind of embrace some fluidity in the specific form that you pursue these objectives through is a huge strategic advantage. And I think a lot of the best entrepreneurs are people who are, you know, kind of MacGyvers, uh, you know, uh, with capital and with with resources, you know, where they can sort of take X and turn it into A, B, and C, um, you know, and, uh, that, you know, I think that doesn't stop when it comes, you know, once you come up with your chickpea concept, it, it's sort of like, it, it permeates the entire capital stack and, you know, corporate planning and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, and, and like, I, I think, you know, it's, it's when you're the thing about raising money though, is it's a milestone. You can put it on LinkedIn. People will like it and be like, I raised $45 million from a rich guy. Um, and all of a sudden you, you embody success. Right. Um, you know, but is that announcement progress or yeah. is it trivia? Yeah. Well, you know? to, me, to me, I, to me, I look at it like, Shit, now I'm in 40, I'm 45 million in debt right now. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's like, you know, with marriage, it's a lot easier to end, uh, like it's a lot easier to end a relationship than it is to get a venture capitalist off your term sheet if you don't like them. Totally, right? Yeah, imagine that. So do you think then a person, let's say the person listening right now, they're like, good idea. Should they do be doing like, family friends type thing and trying to get the initial let's say they have barely any money you know they have a little bit you know but not enough to get something going should they do you know start reaching out to family friends and giving equity and different stuff like that and then go to the next kind of round is that the way to I do mean, it that's always an approach it's that's you know it's it's tough to say that that is something that people should do because it's it's you know definitely not universally available right like it's you know that your ability to do a family and friends around is basically a strict function of whether you have rich family and friends <laughs> and, a good, and a good salesperson. <laughs> and yeah. And a good salesperson. Right. And so it, it's like the, like, you know, yeah. And th you know, we should do a lot of things. Right. Um, but the, you know, I, I think if you, if you're looking at a, a plan where you're like, I need $500,000 of capital to do all of these things. Um, and you're like, okay, so I can, you know, I have a certain number of hours in the week. And I can either devote it to raising that capital or finding a way to accomplish a smaller chunk of it with the resources I have. Um, you know, and yeah. like, I, I think that, you know, it, it's surprising how many opportunities there are for people to pay you to learn or develop your concept, um, whether it's as a consultant or just kind of bootstrapping or whatever. Um, you know, and the thing that, you know, again, stinks about being reliant on external funders um, is it, it kind of limits your staying power, 
right? Because then all of a sudden, if those external funders are unhappy, you know, but you th you still think your concept has a lot of legs, um, yeah. they yeah. kind of run the show, right? You know, yeah, right, yeah. So that yeah, it's it's a toughie. I mean, it's like the you know, it's and and it, the thing the thing that truly stinks is that it's different for every single business, right? Uh, you know, um, you know, so it, and it's like at the end of the day, you know, businesses are as unique as people. Right. Um, you know, and like for some people, you know, living in, in one place is going to be great. And for other people, it's going to be hell. Right. Right. You know? Do you think there's any one type of business right now that would be a good investment? Um, so one of the things that, so, you know, again, the way, the way that I think about investing is I, I'm managing, you know, people's long-term capital, right? So, I tell people if you need this money within seven years, don't send it in. Right. right. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, the couple things that kind of stand to my come to mind broadly to me. One of the biggest is elder care, um, and uh, you know, I, I think that like if you look at the demographic profile, certainly in North America, but really throughout the world, um, you know, we have a significant shift, you know, in the dynamics of our population, where you know more and more of our our citizens, our, our neighbors are going to need continuing care. And if you look at the, you know, kind of infrastructure that exists to serve that, I don't know as much about Canada, but certainly in the US, it's underbuilt and under maintained and, you know, kind of under thought out. Same, uh, same thing here. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Because, you know, I like, look, it, in the, the kind of like, you know, Anglo-European world, we traditionally forget about our elders, right? Um, or the, when they sort of stop being quote unquote useful. Um, but it, one of the most mismatched, you know, things that I, I see right now, like I look at, you know, I own a couple of stocks that are aligned with this and, you know, I, I listen in on those calls and I just, I, I hear the CEOs talking and it's like, it, it seems like they're describing, you know, like, oh yeah, I think we might need to build roads sometime soon, but I can't get anyone else to care about it. Uh, you know, it's yeah. like the it's glaringly obvious, um, not sexy, you know, like, but it, the, you know, in terms of the direct impact, if you can create a solid home for 50 seniors, um, you know, maybe it's vegan seniors who like, you know, I, I mean, is there even a vegan only nursing home anywhere? I don't know. I don't think so. I would, uh, I, I would think I would go on the side with you is not a chance yet. <laughs> yeah. Chance. You know. But but like you know, queer people, vegan people, indigenous yeah. people, we're all going to retire, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and like we're all going to need care. And there is you know a proliferation of opportunity there. I think that people, um, you know, are not really paying much attention to in general. Um, you know, what else is what else is big right now? I mean, I, I'm a big fan of uh, kind of agricultural transformation as you know a big thing. Like you know, in the U.S., less than you know, one and a half percent of our overall farmland meets USDA organic standards. Wow. Uh, that low. Emba wow. Embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I mean, it's like it, it, it blows your mind. And, and part of that is because, you know, meeting organic standards is a regulatory thing mm -hmm. and the cost of compliance is kind of significant. And so to say you do it versus to actually be doing it in practice, you know, maybe maybe it's three or four percent if you make uh, some pretty promiscuous allowances. Um, but no farms, no food. Um, right. And like the, as we 
think about our food system and try to enact changes towards, you know, kind of more locally grown, you know, um, regeneratively harvested and, 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 uh, and built foodstuffs, um, there, there things need to happen in connection with that. We need, you know, mushroom farms close to cities where, you know, people are getting a taste for oyster mushrooms and trust trumpet mushrooms all of a sudden and like, right. you know, or microgreens or something like that. Um, you know, they're the, those are kind of plug and play businesses in a lot of settings where, um, you know, you can kind of go into your local supermarket and be like, Hey, have you been trying to get mushrooms and you haven't been able to, let's talk about that. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. And, and, and those, those kind of like, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to say one should do it than it is to actually make a living doing it, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that it's important to remember just how big the vegan opportunity space is, um, right. You know, and not let other people define it as, you know, you need to figure out a way to like grow meat in a lab. Right. Um, you know, and instead think about like, what is it that you would like to have more available, um, that you think people don't know about, um, and, and that you can make available. Right. right. Like it, it might be as simple as like telling people what paprika is, um, right. you know, through spices and, you know, whatever. Um, or it might be, you know, all, all sorts of, I mean, who knows? Like I, there, someone listening is better placed to answer this question, uh, you know, that I am in some ways, because, you know, I think someone will be listening and go, wow. Yeah. There's, there's something that's kind of glaringly obvious that ought to be more available. Yeah. And maybe I can do that. Yeah. No, yeah. I like, I agree. I like that idea. And I think that I agree too. I think there's lots of opportunity in a lot of businesses in the space that are not, you know, because everyone, Oh, when everyone think vegan, it always moves to restaurants, food, yep. you know, like that's the main thing. Even people that are not vegan, they just think that right away. Yep. Uh, you know, so there's a, there's a company in, in Vancouver, just Victoria Island. Uh, I know them quite well. They, um, they, they have seaweed farms. Oh, cool! And they grow they grow seaweed, and a matter of fact, they had to get the had to partner with Indigenous because Indigenous has all those rights. Um, so I, I I'll be honest, I've been I've been looking um, into that, and I thought of a, a product that I could probably create around seaweed farms. To tell you the truth, that's you should do. It. I mean, like that's I, I think that you know anything that you can do that takes a like you know. I mean, you basically are able to, seaweed is not a very expensive product to come up with. Yeah. And if you can come up with an output from it and then sustainably manage, you know, your seaweed, I don't know what the word, would it be a growery? Yeah. They grow, grow, grow it. Yeah. Grow it. Yeah. Uh, no, but like, but I guess you'd call it a seaweed farm probably. Seaweed farm. Uh, yeah. Seaweed farm. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, your, your seaweed, uh, you know, incubation zone or something. Incubation um, zone, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, like at the, if you, I mean, there's, you know, land stewardship that's built into that, right? You have to look after the space that you're you're growing and you're yeah. able to kind of build a business line along that. And then also seaweed is delicious and yeah. people don't know how to eat it. Um, yeah. you know, and, and, and like you can be the person who shows them how to eat it and how cool is that? Yeah, I, I love that. Seeing those ideas. Like I didn't, you know, even me being vegan for so long, I, I didn't eat a lot of seaweed, but then uh, my, my ex uh, was from Vietnam. And there you go. Yeah. And like, so she was buying me all the seaweed stuff and I was like, oh shit, this is so good. Like I ate so much different things. Right. And then, you know, 
I think that's one of the big, uh, the big beauties of this practice and commitment, commitment to this kind of set of, of tendencies is that like you wind up having the opportunity to experience so much cross-cultural, you know, stuff. Right. Cause like, I mean, I grew up in a, a right wing, uh, you know, American context where I was like, you know, taught to eat red meat, basically raw. Um, and that was like my, you know, that was my idea of a nice meal was like basically raw meat. Um, and then, you know, yeah. And then, and then I was like, I had the, the aha moment where I was like, oh, wow, I'm complicit in murder at massive scale. Um, and then the, so what moment, um, and you know, there was a, a period where it's like, okay, well, gosh, I can't do anything. Everything is terrible. Um, but once you get past that, you realize that there is this, you know, constellation of opportunities and experiences that can be explored. And it's, it's really a liberating and wonderful experience. Yeah, that, that's great. You know, well, I grew up to Saskatchewan and so that's in Canada part where it's a lot of meat, right? It's, you know, it's farming and, and, you know, there's green farming stuff too, but there's lots of, you know, dairy farming and meat farming yeah. and stuff. Right. And so you just, grew up around that, you know, it was, it's interesting how my life changed because I even worked on a dairy farm and, oh, worked, no way. and worked in a slaughterhouse. Oh my gosh. And, you know, and because and he, these jobs would come along because we were all hockey players and good hockey players. So our coaches always, whether they worked in the slaughterhouses or owned dairy farms or, so we always got these jobs because of our coaches. Right. Yep. You know, but I'll tell you this, I'll, you put somebody to go work in a slaughterhouse, I will tell you 50% of people will stop eating meat eventually. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Like it it is, it's a whole nother level of 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 the I couldn't even I had to put Vicks in my nose to because I have a weak stomach to walk. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to go by the kill floor to get to where my position, like there's no way I was working on the kill floor. Yeah. Like, they were like, Oh, do you want to work on the because I was built, right? And these, yep. these guys that work on the kill for literally just take the animals and hang them up on, on all day. So they're built like just, they, it's hot. Like, you know, that's all they yep. do. So there's these, these built guys that just do that. And I was like puking walking through there, like literally. And, <laughs> and that's when I was still eating meat, but I yep. was puking. Like, yep. And yeah, I literally, I put Vickers up my nose because my my family still laughs at that because I was like literally I couldn't even get through the orientation. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, you know, that, that reminds me of like when I was starting my firm, I, uh, I met with a friend who's like not a particularly ethically motivated person, but he's very smart. Um, and you know, he had, you know, he's Australian. He had, he had had a history, he had been, um, a lender to various agricultural stuff. Um, and he was like, man, you know, I, I realized that, literally all of the worst investment decisions of my life have been involved in lending to slaughterhouses, uh, you know, both because they are kind of bad businesses, uh, from yeah. a lot of standpoints, they're, you know, complicated, you know, and not particularly yeah. high margin. Um, but also you have to go there in order, <laughs> in order to like check in on it. Right. Totally. So you have to, you actually have to experience the slaughterhouse, which is a, a thing that, I, I, you know, we do tremendous work as a society to keep people from doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do. We, I mean, you couldn't even get that. You couldn't even get the smell out of your clothes from that place. Yeah. Like, yeah. Even, and, that, and, even my car, 
I couldn't get the smell in my car just from working there. And I, I would change and everything. It was so bad. It's it's really, I mean, from an investment standpoint, it's it's really staggering to consider that, you know, here we have these, you know, a couple like JBS and Smithfield and, uh, you know, uh, whatever other and Tyson and all these other kind of, you know, murder conglomerates that um, like have managed to, you know, kind of force a ton, like create these conditions that where tons of people experience what I would consider to be torture on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That, you know, and go through all of this effort, do all this stuff. And then on top of all the murder, on top of all the discomfort, on top of all the bad smells, they don't even generate meaningful amounts of money. Yeah. Go, yeah. Go <laughs> you know, like it, it's kind of like if you're going to be evil, at least be good at it. You know, yeah. I, I, the <laughs> yeah, yeah. At least if you're going to do that, you know, make some money at it, you know, right. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that was uh, my whole experience in, in in those days. So it's I always kind of it's a bit so interesting. Like now I look back of like how I went working on dairy farm and a slaughterhouse, and then you know where I am today. You know, like it's like completely one hundred percent opposite uh, of that. You know, but I mean, I mean, it make it makes sense that you would that it would precipitate sort of an awakening to have that first hand experience, though. Yeah. And it wasn't like I was going and applying at the jobs, you know, where you're just excited at 17 and 18 yeah. to get a job, right? <laughs> yeah, you're just trying to get like, yeah, get some yeah. beer money. Yeah, and, you totally, know, right? Kinda, yeah, yeah. Right? So, <laughs> but I'll give you a quick story. The dairy farm was interesting because that's how I got to really know animals. So there yeah. was, it was a big, big herd. Like the head was like 450, 450, a big operation, right? Big. Mm-hmm. And, and and so we would milk the cows and there was always two cows that would wait to the very end. They would not go in and get milked and they would consistently put their heads in the door where you were milking and, and play all the time. And you would, they would play and play and play. I got so close with the one that it would literally bend over and would pick me up on its head and put it on its back. Oh, yeah. So it was, so cute. Like, it was, it was so like, and it showed the personalities they really had. And, and these two definitely like there, there was nobody, even the hardcore core guys that worked there would be like, yeah, like these two have personalities like I've never seen. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, I think, you know, it's really interesting how, you know, we've kind of socially constructed these ideas about which animals it's okay to kill, you know? And like the, the example I always get, like, you know, imagine that, we found a cow on Mars, um, right? We would be trying to establish like diplomatic relations with them. We wouldn't be trying to like harvest them for food, uh, you know, or, or but like because their mode of intelligence doesn't look the same as human intelligence, you know? Yeah. Well, and I always say I have a big problem with people that are always touting off about, you know, Chinese when they eat the dogs now how now if they they torture them and stuff that's not right but I'm like you're a hypocrite I said to all my friends you can't say anything you eat meat so what's wrong with they dogs if they did it in a civil way there's yeah. no difference there's literally no difference to that yeah so I, I love I you probably know Elwood's organic dog meat on Twitter uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um like I, yeah I think that particular hypocrisy is one of the most like jarring ones when it comes up and it comes up all the time yeah um yeah, yeah you know where people are like who who would ever eat a dog while well, they're just like sitting there munching on a you know on like 
you know, calamari or something like that for, you know, kill, killing an octopus. That's like uh, this treasure of, of cognitive ability. Totally. Totally. I, I purposely one night when we were out and a bunch of business people I know and, and, and they, everyone was ordering these high end steaks and, and stuff. And, you know, and I, so it was, you know, I started talking about, you know, the, the dog yeah like that and 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 uh you know it's interesting how the how the conversation the conversation started to go because there are all, most of them at the table all had dogs and were dog lovers so it was quite you're, like you're fat you're fattening them up to eat right like yeah, you know, totally, it's like right? you're like come easter you're gonna you're gonna eat fido right exactly right <laughs> so <laughs> so speaking of that look at look at what i got oh right my god there. oh Oh my god! That dog is so cute. Oh, uh, you know, one of the problems with the podcast medium is that people can't see how freaking adorable that puppy is. Totally right. Like everybody knows her because I'm like, I don't care if it's a podcast or not. I oh. put her on everywhere, right? I'm like, <laughs> she 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 literally looks like a muppet um, oh. in the best way. Yeah, um, like she's like if she doesn't move, people like literally think she's fake. Like I I, th I thought you were holding up a stuffed animal. <laughs> yeah, totally right. <laughs> that, that's even funnier that's my uh my uh what would they call it if i had a stuffed animal holding right now my uh like some kind of therapy thing i'd be going <laughs> i mean hey that's innovation right there that's so, your vegan business yeah <laughs> totally exactly right <laughs> awesome well this has been a good conversation i really enjoyed it because we've gotten to go in so many great different ways and I, oh yeah, absolutely. It's been really fun for me too. Thanks for, thanks so much for, you know, have given me the opportunity to hang out, you know? Oh, you're so welcome. And thanks for being on. I think too, you know, there's going to, lots of people, you know, enjoy hearing, you know, the get it, you know, getting different ideas and innovation. And I'm glad we went up that way because I think there is a lot of opportunity uh, in yeah. this place right now. And I think it's just going to get bigger, but I think, you know, sometimes right now people are not believing that because you hear things all the market's slowing down or the trend is slowing down, you know, and, and that's because of certain companies, you know, like beyond the mean and certain stuff. If, if a stock falls or something, then everyone goes, Oh, the industry's over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, that's actually, that's a great observation. You know, if I could leave literally anything uh, with your listeners, right. It's like, remember, you know, the stock market is, you know, it's going to be up 55% of days, 65% of weeks, 75% of years. And, if it's doing something other than being up, you you should do whatever it was you were going to do anyway, <laughs> to I, the extent that you can, right? Like you don't want to be in a position where you've predicated your life on the stock market going up, right? You don't want to be, you know, out here borrowing money to invest that you don't have or whatever. Um, but for almost every good business, the macroeconomic considerations that people obsess over are fundamentally irrelevant. Um, right. And it's like, it's about, are you building something people want? Um, and if, if not, why not, you know? Um, and, yeah. uh, like the, the more you can ignore that high level noise, I mean, even like my literal job is to manage stocks in the stock market. And I spend a lot of time trying to ignore that noise. Right. Um, yeah. you know, so if someone's trying to start a restaurant or, or something like that, that has nothing to do with the stock market, imagine how much more ignoring they should be doing. Oh, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I, I, yeah I, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. You know, it was, it was interesting because 
I started creating, uh, I've always been good at building back-end businesses, right? The operations, building teams, people, yeah. like all that. So I built a training for conscious and vegan businesses. And one of my people said, hey, do you think we're, we're?" because I was doing consulting for lots of other businesses before. And I just said, let's just go into this space. And then somebody says, do you think there's enough businesses? <laughs> and I was like, and I honestly, I looked and I go, can you say that again? Did I hear that right? Like that was my exact reaction. And then they were like, they were like, oh shit, I get it. All right. Like right, this right. Is, <laughs> it do be like that. It do be yeah. like, I mean, yeah, it's like I mean, but that's you know, you you gave that person the the opportunity to like kind of step outside their comfort zone a little bit. And probably it changed the way that they see opportunity now. Yeah, yeah, know? they really have hundred percent. And even some of the people that you know sell with us and stuff you know they didn't really understand the market and now they know it at a whole nother level and you know yeah. i said i said we could build a million dollar business just on that product alone just vancouver and portland and nowhere else right just from from that because these are two cities that are major vegan yeah. you know cities. Yeah. I said, we could just go to these two cities and have a million dollar business just from those two cities alone right so then That's then the, yeah then they got it very fast <laughs> but i put it into those terms yeah, well, and the other thing that's meaningful is that a lot of people who are vegan will look for vegan businesses, right? It's the kind of thing that you're, It's. I mean, if you're, you know, like trans, it's not necessarily the case that you're like, okay, well, I need a trans investment manager now, Yeah. Uh, you know, but if you're vegan, it, it, you know, it often is that way, you know, so I think it's a really good segment to focus on. Yeah, and I love how you brought that up because, you know, that was a honestly a, a conscious positioning of mine. And I said to my team, oh, that's our white space easy because there is not a lot of vegan business people that are teaching this stuff. You know, there's a lot of business people teaching business stuff, but not a lot of vegan ones that can do it yep. at the level that I can do it. So I'm like, exactly. that's, that's our white space. Who are they going to choose? The consultant that eats meat or us, period. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Literally so similar to, I mean, I was like, wow, I, you know, I could start a fund in a lot of different ways, but gosh, wouldn't it be great if I could just do it in a very distinctive way? Yeah. Um, and that that's powerful. It really is. You know, I always think that you can always find white space somewhere. You've just got to figure out, look for it. And it might not always, might not always be the industry, but it might be your personality of the white space. Hey, I'm vegan. This industry is that. That's good for me. You know, I get the leg up now. I'm indigenous. Now I'm going to, you know, utilize that and be like, Hey, you know, like, you know, we sent out a few decks and to some of the promoters were like, oh, by the way, we've seen you have no indigenous people speaking on your stage. It is this nationality for the last 10 years. <laughs> right? so, Got him. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> so awesome. Well, where can everybody find out more about you? Social medias, websites. Uh, oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, for the business, uh, investvegan.org, um, you know, currently I'm only able to take U.S. citizens as clients. So I got lots uh, of U.S. citizens that watch this. So, oh, well, then heck, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, hit me up on investvegan.org. You can start an account right online. Pretty easy form. Um, I'm on TikTok and Instagram and Twitter as investvegan. And then me personally, you know, my, my handles are all super creative, invest vegan for the business and slow Nortel for me on Twitter and Facebook and wherever else you might, uh, you might look. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this and everybody, uh, go over and, uh, especially in the U S go look at the investment stuff. There could be some great potential. Oh yeah. And, and even if you're, I mean, and you know, I'm, 
pretty transparent about what I own. So if uh, folks are like just looking for ideas about how to construct a vegan portfolio, there are resources on investvegan.org that uh, should be helpful for them. Um, you know, or I, I hope are helpful for them. And and I always, always, always love hearing from people who, with questions. So you know, um, feel free to write me Sloan at investvegan.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for this. This has been a great talk. Thank you. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. I was sending you a long distance high five, Shane, and, high and five back to, to everyone listening as well through the, the inner tubes. Yeah, that's right. Awesome, everybody. Uh, see you soon. Bye-bye now.